Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Uh, so, okay, I, I, what I want to talk about is this topic of, of uh, human dignity. And I'll tell you how I came to this. I had a fellowship for a year at the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin. Can everybody hear me? Yeah? And uh, this is an institute for advanced study. It's a very prestigious place and very luxurious and wonderful with some scholars who are, about 30 scholars are invited to spend the year, uh, each year. And uh, I was with some very impressive people. And it was quite wonderful. And while I was there, uh, one of the small conferences organized, workshop, uh, was on human dignity. Avishai Margalit was invited, professor, famous professor of philosophy from Israel, to give the opening. And I was asked to talk about human dignity in Judaism. And I found it, first of all, it was a wonderful topic, an intriguing topic for me. I hadn't worked on it before. And especially in Germany, because the German constitution that was written after World War II has in it of course, the Article One is the inviolable dignity of a human being. And it's been an important principle in Germany, given what they did, first of all, uh, just three years before they wrote that constitution. And it's been something that they adhere to very strongly. And one of the organizers of the conference is a man named Dieter Grimm, a professor of law at the Humboldt University in Berlin, who himself is retired as a member of the German Constitutional Court, which is their equivalent of our Supreme Court. So dignity, human dignity was, has been invoked most famously in Germany with the question of torture. Torture, the court decided, is absolutely forbidden, absolutely banned in Germany, for example, on the grounds that it violates the dignity of the human being, and that is inviolable, that cannot be violated. So the question was, what does Judaism have to contribute to this conversation? And please notice that human dignity is not the same as human rights. These are two different things. The concept of human dignity is something that historians, most recently, Sam Moyne in that book, you two probably know, I'm sure you do, Jessica. Uh, Sam Moyne, who teaches at Yale Law School, says the concept was really um, uh, spurred in a way by, um, by people reactionary Catholics in the early part of the 20th century. They liked the idea of human dignity because they felt it was something that could keep them, somehow preserve them from having to deal with very concrete issues like uh, social welfare concerns, and medical care for everybody, or food for people, or taking care of the elderly and the disabled, and so on. Instead of having to do the concrete things that a state does to care for people in a very basic physical way, instead they could say, we care about the dignity of human beings. That's what we care about. And so it was in opposition to more democratic social welfare principles that the concept arose. 
Now, how a concept arises is one thing. How it continues, of course, is something else. And so I'm not 100% happy with that book for other kinds of reasons as well. But then comes the question, well, what does Judaism contribute? And I brought to you a few texts because it seems to me that Judaism actually has something special and important to say about human dignity that I think needs to be taken seriously by everyone, Jewish or not. Let's just look at some of these texts. Um, the first one is from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Would someone like to read it out loud? Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and able rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. What? Yes, that's the preamble. And then Article 1. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in the spirit of brotherhood. Good. Thank you. So there's a basic principle, all human beings, and you're born with dignity, and that's it. And you should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood, fine. So now we know that in Judaism, when we talk about people being born with dignity, what do we turn to? We turn to Genesis, to the creation. How are human beings created by God? It's, yes, in the image of God in the image of God, in that one could talk about it, but I'll bracket it for the moment, the use of the word selim, which is actually a problem, sometimes problematic term. It's used sometimes in a negative sense for an idol, for example. But okay, we are created in the image of God, which is quite extraordinary. Just think about it. That is an extraordinary, extraordinary commitment, belief, statement in our Torah to say we are created in the image of God. We can ask ourselves, what does it mean to be an image of God? We're told, for example, actually, I'll tell you something. My father used to joke about this, to tease people. He liked to tease. And he would say, when did God break the Ten Commandments? And people would think, well, there's no one. And he would say, the Ten Commandments says, do not make an image of God. And yet it says in the Torah that God made an image of God. It's funny, you know, ha-ha, okay. <laughs> and then the question is, what does it mean to be an image of God? What does it do? What, what, what do you, what, that, that's, it comes with gravitas. That's a very serious thing. And he would say, to be an image of God is to be a reminder. To be a reminder, you live your life in such a way that people look at you and they're reminded of God. That's what it means to be an image of God. So to say this, first of all, I think is quite extraordinary in the scope of world religions as a religion professor, to say that human beings are created in God's image. It goes on. Psalm, this is, an, I have a few passages here. Psalm 8, verse 5. You have crowned him. Someone want to read that? You have crowned him. Yes? You have crowned him in with glory and majesty. All that God created for his world, he created exclusively for his glory. For his honor, yes. That's from the Pirkei Avot. Yeah, so um, first of all, there is something intrinsic to human beings called dignity. You can't be a human being without dignity. That's it. We're all born that way, with dignity. But 
I want to now turn to some of the rabbinic teachings and tell you what I think is special and unique in Judaism. First of all, you know, the word kavod is an interesting word because it can be translated in three ways. Kavod can mean dignity, kavod can mean honor, and kavod Hashem means God's glory. We just say parenthetically that, you know, <laughs> there are tendencies in Zionism to secularize. And, uh, and so the concept of glory in modern Hebrew, kavod, has been lost, which is unfortunate. At any rate, honor and dignity are actually two different ideas. If you think about honor, an honor culture is a society that has certain, they might call, standards. You can say, um, my honor has been violated, and how will you restore your honor? You know the tradition in Central Europe when men would fight a duel, for example. Honor. If, it's, if you feel your honor has been violated, you restore it through revenge. That's the classic model. Dignity is something very different. Dignity cannot be restored through revenge. On the contrary. And in fact, what's interesting is that we read over and over about people whose dignity is violated by someone else, and yet they go into themselves and they recover their own sense of dignity. They feel, no matter what you say about me as a Jew, as a black person, as a woman, you can mock me, you can demean me, but I know who I am. Forgive me, but I was in, I was, I had to lecture at the University of Vienna last month, and I had a lot of family there. Uh, and I just want to say something parenthetically, perhaps. My uncle was the Kabitschnitzer Rebbe in Vienna. And when the Anschluss happened, um, and you know this happened to a lot of people, so they came and they took him on the street and they wanted to cut off his beard, and he said, no, you cut off my arm, don't touch my beard. They made him and a lot of other religious Jews with the toothbrush go down on the, on the, on the floor on the street on the cobblestones to clean the cobblestones with the toothbrush to demean him, to humiliate him. And you know, I think uh, there's a distinction here. You know, Nazis did what Nazis do. That's a, what it is to be a Nazi, to do this. But what I, find, what I find troubling, more troubling, is the Viennese Gentiles who stood around laughing and mocking. And there I wonder, what does that mean? What does it do to them? It doesn't do anything to my uncle. My uncle knows who he is. But what does it mean to mock someone in a situation like that? And that's what I find also troubling when I think about how do you, how do you restore your own dignity after having mocked someone in that way? What do you do? And so that brings me to my main point, which is this. When we think about Jewish, Jewish tradition, Jewish law, we find over and over again that dignity is something that you convey to people. Let's think, for example, about a corpse. You know very well, as I do, that when somebody passes away, the Hever Kedisha comes and washes the corpse. A body is never left alone. Somebody is always with the body and davening till him. Yes? The corpse is treated with respect, with dignity. Now, you know 
a corpse doesn't know that. A corpse doesn't know what's happening. So why do you do it? Because to convey dignity actually gives you dignity. Our own dignity not only comes just by virtue of having been created in the image of God, it comes by giving dignity to others. We can see this over and over again. In the next text, for example, I'll just summarize. This, I think, is very well known. This sort of little exchange between Hillel and Shammai, do you tell the bride she is beautiful? Of course you tell the bride she's beautiful. What if she isn't beautiful? You still tell her she's beautiful. I would hope most of us don't need to learn that as a principle, but some of us may. Yeah? How do you treat another person? Let's say the person isn't attractive. Let's say the person isn't such a nice person. Perhaps you can restore someone's dignity by treating the person with dignity. Perhaps that person will actually become more of a mensch if we treat the person with dignity. And that's, I think, what Hillel is trying to teach us there. There's an incident here, if you look at the bottom of the page, the Mishnah Baba Kama. Someone took the head covering off of a woman in the street. She went to Rabbi Kiva, and he was appalled, and he said that this man who did this to you, he has to pay a fine. The man objected, why should I pay a fine? I once remember, he said, I once saw her spilling uh, some, some, some oil and her, her, her head covering fell off and she took the oil and so forth. So why, why should I give her money? Rabbi Kiva said, if somebody violates their own dignity, essentially, that's their business. If someone behaves badly, that's their business but that doesn't give you an excuse to treat the person in a shameful way. And perhaps that also leads us to another point I want to make, which is that the opposite of dignity, what is the opposite of dignity? Shame. Shame is the opposite of dignity. And there is so much in rabbinic literature against shame. Never shame another person. To humiliate someone in public is tantamount to murder, we're told. To shame another person, to take away the person's dignity in public. And of course, dignity operates not only on the level of a deed, of how you treat somebody, but also in language. That's very clear. How you speak to someone, how you speak about someone. You know, it's something unforgivable in Judaism obviously murder, but also destroying someone's reputation because you can never restore a person's good name. How do you take it back if you've spread gossip about someone? So dignity operates on the level of deed and language. And we could say that just as shame is the opposite of dignity, vulgarity is also the opposite of dignity, of dignified language. So if you turn the page, you see a few more texts. And we have here, perhaps, some questions, some problems. You see here from this Midrash, God pays attention to the dignity of Israel. God pays attention to how we treat one another and how we behave ourselves. But here's some problems now with Kavod, Kavod Tzibor. Somebody want to read every one, the, the, the passage from Megillah, everyone is included? 
Please. Everyone is included in the counting of seven, even a woman, even a child. But women may not read because of the honor of the congregation. Thank you. So this is referring, of course, to people being called up for an aliyah to the Torah. Who can be called up for an aliyah? Everyone can be called up, but women shouldn't because of kavod atzibur, the honor of the congregation, the dignity of the congregation. And there we have to ask, what does that mean? Is dignity something that changes over time? Does it depend on the era in which we live? If we live in an era where men and women study together, where women and men are both professional people working side by side, is it really a violation of men's dignity or the dignity of the congregation if women are called to the Torah? Is it? Or do we say dignity is something that is always static, the same, it doesn't change over time? Something for us to think about. Another question we might ask is, whose dignity is at stake in this passage? Whose dignity is violated, supposedly, by a woman having an aliyah? Is it women's dignity or is it men's dignity? If it's men's dignity, well, where's the dignity of women? Where's the worry about it? Can, yeah? These are some of the problems. I'm, I'm not trying to give you, I'm just trying to point this out. I'm not trying to give you an answer, uh, but, but to point out some of the problems. Another problem that comes up is the problem of whether dignity requires equality. And that's essentially what this is about. In other words, is my dignity violated if I'm told that I can never, for my whole life as a woman, have the same rights as a man? I can't vote in an election, or I can't hold the same position, or earn the same salary, and so forth. What if I'm told that, in fact, uh, my inferior status, or my exclusion, is meant to protect me, or even honor me. And one of the issues that we worry about in society these days is whether we want equality of men and women, or if we want special legislation or special social structures that protect differences, the differences that affect women's lives, for instance. I can say quite simply, <laughs> women who are professors, who come up for tenure, you know, you finish graduate school, let's say you're in your late 20s, then you come up for tenure and you've got six books, excuse me, six years to get those books written. And by then, you know, you're in your late 30s and you've missed the chance to have children. Should tenure itself be extended for women? Or should the whole system change? Because it was based on the idea that only males were professors and they weren't having children. They didn't have to worry about these things. So do we want special legislation to protect women or do we want equality? And what actually is the relationship between equality and dignity? I want to just now turn to a, a tshuva, responsum, written by Ovadia Yosef, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, who at times said some things that I found bizarre. But this, in this case, he said something very important. He was very, very deeply learned. He died about five years ago. He was very deeply learned in Jewish law. And this is the question. So great is the dignity of creatures that it displaces the prohibition of the Torah. OK. Here was the situation. 
on the question of dignity and how he ruled. A woman came to him and said, she was pregnant, and said that she was worried. If the baby is a boy and it's the firstborn, then her husband would, of course, organize a pidyona ben. You know what that is, a redemption of the firstborn son. But she told the rabbi that her husband didn't know this, but before she married him, she had had an abortion, which means that this baby she was going to birth was not the first child that had been in her womb. What should she do? To have the pidyona ben would be, in a sense, to lie. And he ruled that she shouldn't tell her husband she should have the pidyona ben if the child is a boy, because the kind of shame it would cause and possibly the disruption of the marriage. No, her dignity needed to be preserved, her dignity. And she should not be humiliated that the whole community would know something had happened, yeah? And I thought that that was a remarkable decision that points to, yeah, your, people are shaking their heads here. Uh, it points to his compassion, for one thing, and it points to the importance of upholding dignity, even in a situation where, probably I would imagine for Rabbi Avadia Yosef, having an abortion is a sin, was the wrong thing to do, and lying is a sin, and withholding from the husband, et cetera, et cetera. But dignity is so important that it takes precedence over everything else. And ultimately, by the way, his ruling was based on the avoidance of shame. You don't shame a person. And he himself, as the rabbi, was in a position there. He could have said to her, you must tell. He would have shamed her. He would have been the one causing her shame before the community. Last? Yes, yes. Are you sure he was worried about her shame? Or was, she more, was the rabbi more worried about shame than that person? I, I, I think it was, it was her shame, because it would have pointed to her. It was her, her body that was producing the baby. Uh, but yes, it would have been a shame, I assume, for the husband as well. If, he, if they had not made a pidyona ben, something odd would have happened, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the details of the case, but the way he argues it to avoid the shame, that I find, that's the important thing to me, to show the importance of this. Yeah, yes? Isn't the pidyona ben the firstborn? Yeah. Firstborn. Born. Yeah. 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 Right. No, I don't know the details of her situation, but, but it was from an issue from her womb. So it may have been a late abortion. It may have been something like that. I don't know. But it, would, it involved something that had happened before she married this man, and she didn't want him to know. OK, finally, um, uh, I want to I, I just mention in passing that in the state of Israel, you know there's no constitution, but there are basic laws. And if you notice the basic laws, and this is the last item, the dignity of, of man, of human beings, and their freedom, that's enshrined in Israel's basic laws. But it doesn't say equality. Does anybody know why? It was negotiated. 
and the concession was made to the religious parties in Israel because they were afraid that if it included equality, that this would be problematic since under Jewish law, men and women are not equal. So it was omitted for that reason. So too, the United States, as you probably know, didn't ratify the Universal Declaration of Human Rights until the mid-1980s because the United States government was afraid that it would be used against some of the racial discriminations, the Jim Crow laws in the United States. So they were concerned to, to, to ratify a declaration of human rights when there aren't human rights in this country. Yeah, this was a problem. Ultimately, the United States ratified the UN declaration after President Reagan went to Bitburg. Uh, this was the response. This was sort of a concession. Yeah? That's another story. In conclusion, there's a story told of the philosopher Immanuel Kant, great philosopher of the late 18th century, German Enlightenment. The story is like this. Kant was dying. He was on his deathbed, surrounded by his friends. And then he heard a knock at the door, and he heard that his doctor had arrived to visit him. And he started to get up. He wanted to go and greet his doctor. And his friend said to him, no, no, you know, you're so weak. Don't, don't get up. You stay in bed. And he said to them, would you deny me my human dignity? What I find interesting about that is that for Kant to greet his doctor was to give himself human dignity, which, by the way, was a very important concept to Kant, human dignity. It was a way of giving it to himself by greeting the doctor, by showing some honor to his doctor. He himself would have dignity. And that's exactly what I find at the heart of Jewish law and Jewish teachings, that dignity. That is, it's not only that we are born with dignity as images of God. It's that dignity is something that has to be enacted, performed, conveyed. It's not only that we give dignity to another person, but it's that we give ourselves our own dignity by giving dignity to another, whether the person is alive or whether it's a corpse. To show dignity makes us people of dignity. And that's what I find the important teaching. I would say, by the way, that what has uh, been described by a couple of philosophers in Israel, uh, Avishai Margalit and Gabriel Motzkin, as so unique about what was done to us by the Nazis, they describe as the combination of humiliation and annihilation. That combination. And I would say that uh, it's why it's particularly important, I think, for us as Jews to recognize and to reinforce for ourselves and for the rest of the world what we have to teach about dignity. The dignity is something that's very precious and that has to be constantly reinforced through our actions, through our deeds. That's how dignity is created for ourselves and for others and reinforced. Thank you. Okay, we have about seven minutes for a few, uh, a few questions. Why don't we take Please. all uh, questions at once, um, and then you'll have an opportunity to respond to what makes sense to respond to. Yeah, go ahead. 
Um, yes. Uh, going back to the bride, and then you used a more kind of a more serious example with the uh, chief rabbi, the chief rabbi in Israel. So, uh, dignity it supersedes um, a lie. Yes. Because um, you know, there's the saying: if you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. You know, don't say anything at all. So, by being silent, then are you denying the dignity of the bride to say that she, you look, you're beautiful, or is it best for your own dignity to not, not lie about it? Okay, thank you, Cheryl. Good, Alan. Yeah, I'm a little confused by the paragraph where everyone's included in counting of seven, and I'm interpreting that 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 would include a minion, even though that's ten. And yet, um, it's a seven for Aaliyah. Yeah, the seven to are called up for an Aaliyah. Okay, um, so if you if you can be called up for Aaliyah, why isn't that this? Um, but and then women cannot read cannot read the Torah because of the honor of the congregation. Why isn't that also, you know, not an honor for the congregation? Thank you. Great. Yes, Chris Davis? Uh, what, what might the individual's responsibility be to earn dignity? Mm -hmm. Very nice. Anyone else? Uh, so maybe I'll throw one at myself also. I wonder if you think human dignity can be lost. Uh, Abhishek Margulis, who you mentioned, Israeli philosopher, suggests that we have social dignity and human dignity. Social dignity we can lose, like when we commit a crime, we lose rights because we go to prison in certain cases, and we lose certain rights, but human dignity can't be lost, even though we lose social dignity. And I wonder if you agree with that formulation or not. So, oh. Uh, regarding the Aaliyah, um, so you know, the woman who had the abortion and still had the right for the firstborn, why didn't the rabbi maybe recognize that it was his responsibility to honor her dignity by acknowledging that she had had an abortion instead of reinforcing that that was something shameful. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you know, I would say, first of all, with the Hillel Shammai, you know, when you tell somebody, you can say, you look beautiful, or that was such a, I, I've, look, I have students. If I say to them, that was such a smart question. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I don't have to say it. But if I do say it, I can tell you that they will do better in class the next time even. They will feel reinforced. They will feel good about themselves. Somebody once said to me, you can teach in two ways. You can scare the kids or you can love the kids. And if you love the kids, they'll, they'll really do well. They really rise to the occasion. So I think you, you give something to someone in that sense. I think this, but the bride, it, it's, it's a metaphor for our lives. Yeah? Uh, yes? You may not think the bride is beautiful, but I think the groom does. Of course. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And she may not at that moment. She herself may be anxious. Yeah? So it's, but it's a gift. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, about being called up to the Torah. Um, th there's a long discussion about that and whether this passage should be interpreted sort of sociologically or uh, as having eternal validity, or you know, sociological meaning is dependent on the society in the particular moment. But it's one of those passages that um, has been debated uh, in terms of women's rights in the synagogue and whether a woman can be called to the Torah and so on. And, and it applies in many other respects as well. Uh, 
uh, in terms of um, a, a woman having a bat mitzvah, for example, or becoming a rabbi, or simply teaching Torah, is it permissible? What if a woman is learned? Can she teach in a school? If you know, Just by virtue of being a woman, should she not be allowed to teach? Because she's teaching rabbinic literature, which comes with a certain authority, and the authority is associated with men. The feminist philosopher Mary Daly once said, if, if God is male, then the male is God. So once you set up a hierarchy and God is only understood as male, then men take a certain position in society that oh, may be problematic. Wait, wait, which was the next? Wait. <laughs> yes, I think there is, of course, individual responsibility for dignity, for our dignity, and for the dignity we convey to other people. Uh, and I, I, I'm, you know, the reason I'm emphasizing conveying to others is because so much of the literature is about being created in God's image, that's it. And what does it mean to be in God's image? Is it our mind that is in God's image? It is the soul that's in what? But it's very static. And what I'm trying to say is that in Jewish teaching, it's something that's active. It's something that you do. Why would you show dignity to a corpse? Yeah? Yeah? And your question was about the abortion issue in this tshuva? Well, first of all, it was a private conversation, and I don't think anybody, I don't think she wanted to tell anybody, and he didn't want to. And uh, I think in those circumstances, that would have been, would not have been helpful to her uh, to make it a public issue. Sure, he could have said in a theoretical way to the congregation, but not to use her as an example. Uh, but he published the tshuva, or so it's known. Well, I don't know if. If he, if he told her to tell her husband or what a relationship was like, uh, a relationship between a husband and wife is something that I, I think is between the two of them. The rabbi is not with them 24 hours, yeah? But he certainly didn't expose her privacy. She came to him in private. But he did publish it to make people know the dignity of the woman takes precedence over having done something which for some is considered sinful. And abortion is considered sinful to some people. Nonetheless, which I think applies more generally, if you do something, and this came back, somebody asked about prison. Was that you? OK. Let's say someone commits a crime. How do we treat that person? Do they lose all dignity, having committed a crime? It's a question. I don't have an answer. I'm not sure. I have to say that I find the people in Vienna who stood around laughing, I don't see how their dignity is ever restored, frankly. Mockeries of another person is something you destroy yourself in the process. Is there something left to be restored? I don't know how you restore that. It's public humiliation. So I, I struggle with that myself. And you asked about Abhishek Margalit. That's it. OK. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.